Hi, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know. We're a podcast that talks about the classical world, so it would be literature, philosophy, art, politics, you know, whatever whatever's floating our boat at the moment, and our goal is to bring that to the masses in a way that isn't completely awful, that you might kind of enjoy a little extra education in your life. And I am joined by my two compatriots, Graham Donaldson. Hello. And Thomas Magby. Hi. My name is AJ Hannenberg, and we are coming to you from sunny Austin, Texas. And today we are talking about what I think is one of the most important things in any conspiracy theorist's arsenal, mm. yeah. tinfoil. Yeah, we can make hats out of it, yeah. protects our brains from yeah. alien waves, uh, probably won't be abducted if you're wearing a tinfoil hat. And uh, it's also great for grilling vegetables. Really, it has a lot of uses. I'm a big, big foil guy. Yeah. yeah. I was a little surprised you wanted to do a whole hour on that, but... Well, you laugh. I, I'm expecting he's going to talk about the process by which you create foil. I would love to find that out. Um, but y- you laugh, but tinfoil could have many uses. Like, can't can you make like a Faraday cage out of tinfoil? Or- um, no, I'm, I just said it was, it's got said so many uses. Things. He's not yeah. making fun. Oh, okay. It's like one of the top, like, like I said, it's a top tool in the conspiracy I mean, theory. I don't always wear a tinfoil hat, but I keep one around. <laughs> but when for, I do. <laughs> I keep one around for special occasions. I wear a normal hat, but it has a lining of tinfoil. Yeah, yeah naturally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't wear all tinfoil. People That's laugh. Right. Well, if the, I mean, is it really true that if the sun has like an explosion, it could fry our electronics? Is that a real thing, or is that yeah, just like an, internet crazy little talk? An EMP, an electromagnetic. But is that real? Yes. I don't think it would be the same. The strength like you'd a, need. To uh, fry what out. is it? A yeah, a coronal mass ejection. Is that yeah, what's called? Something I forget like that? the name of it. But I mean, you can anyway. You, the, Listeners, you, if if the sun can kill our internet. Write us, write us before it's too late <laughs> and let us know. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, we are talking about foil today. Uh, not quite the kind of foil that Hanover was talking about, oh. although um, tinfoil is interesting. Actually, fun Donaldson family fact, we have not bought a roll of tinfoil in 11 years of marriage because what? Amanda saves tinfoil <laughs> and washes it and dries it and um, she reuses tinfoil. I know. It's the weirdest thing in the world, but um, but she just it's like, can't it's like how bear. my mom saves all the wrapping paper from all the presents. Exactly. Shout out, shout out to mom. No, we, I'm not sure we've bought wrapping paper in forever. Exactly, because she, you know, she'll cut you, the tape carefully yep. and then preserve it. Yeah, you keep the wrapping paper. Yeah, you keep the aluminum you, foil somewhere. We keep the aluminum. Yeah, we have it. So when it's cleaned, we fold it and keep it in a drawer. And then when we need to foil something, not. now eventually the foil can get so sully yeah. that it has to go away. Sure but can. then it's just you just keep your antenna up. So. You know, if you have with the antenna made of, <laughs> yeah, thank you. There it is. Um, and it's much easier when we live in a place where, like, there's a proliferation of breakfast tacos that are wrapped in foil all the time. Uh-huh. So anyway, well, then you have little tiny pieces, though. You got to clean it. That's not a lot of tin foil to work with. I don't know. It's enough. It's enough. Yeah. It's enough. Okay. Anyway, foil. So no, the foil we're talking about is a literary analytical tool. Or literary analytical, yeah, it, it's a tool um, wherein you can sort of compare two characters. Um, it may s- it seem kind of simplistic or dull, but um, it actually, I think, can end up being a really powerful thing that gets you talking about a text, talking about a story, um, where you can now elevate it beyond just... Um, some sort of like academic way of talking about a book, right. but you can actually sort of bring it into talking about it on a human level, and you can even be talking about it in regards to yourself. I even think that literature ends up being a foil for us, but we'll get to that at the end. Now, I have in my hands here the Handbook of uh, Two Literature, the 10th edition, by the venerable William Harmon and Hugh Holman. I think AJ's um, going to go get his copy right now. Yeah, AJ, um, the Handbook of Literature is a fantastic book. Let me go, um, I'll go grab mine from the car. Please I'll be, do. Yeah, I'll be right back. Basically what this is, is uh, the Handbook of Literature is, there you go. Thank we you. got our own. Well, is um, this the same version? 
It's just a dictionary. Or it's a, oh, it's, no, no, no. You have the 7th edition. Yeah. 8th uh, edition. 8th edition, please. sorry. Although, Graham, 12th. Oh, look <laughs> uh, What it. happened to Holman? It just says William Harmon on it. Oh, maybe he, maybe Holman got ditched. Uh-oh. Is there some Uh-oh. big literary scandal anyway. that we didn't hear about? Way more. This so, is huge. Yeah, so the, 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 in, the uh, entry for foil is very brief, and I will read it. So a foil, literally a leaf of bright metal placed under a jewel to increase its brilliance. I don't so think that's, that's the... I don't think that's what we're like talking about. Like gold foil. That's not I, what we're talking I know. about. know. Okay. Okay, but so that's literally what they're talking about. In literature, the term is applied to any person who, through contrast underscores the distinctive characteristics of another. Thus, Laertes, Fortinbras, and even the players, all of whom are willing and able to take action with less reason than Hamlet has, serve as foils to Hamlet. So, uh, they gave you this great example, and the example is of these characters acting as foils to Hamlet in Hamlet, and that's true. So we're just going to talk a little bit about Hamlet. We're also going to talk a little bit about foils in Crime and Punishment. If you are less familiar with these plays, with these books, Hamlet and Crime and Punishment, I mean, you'll still get something out of this podcast, but um, you may want to listen to previous episodes where we sort of do um, synopses of those books. Um, um, But uh, we're going to be sort of talking about these characters... Um, in order to sort of highlight their foildom. Hannenberg, do you have anything different in yours? Nope, same yeah. thing. It's the exact same entry? I have the feeling they just change the page numbers around and sell another edition. Know what I mean? That's how you do it. It looks like, did, so C. Hugh Holman died in like 1981. Oh, there So you go. that might have been, in, anyway, that might have been the reason he, he's not on the book anymore. Oh, because he's... I don't think his contributions are still He's been dead it. longer than I've been alive? Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Um, so... Comparing characters, um, when you have a character in a story, they um, uh, have actions, they're doing things. If you are analyzing that book and if you have look at other characters around them and see that they are in similar contexts or, or are in similar decision, have similar sort of decisions that they have to make and they're doing them in different ways, um, comparing the differences between those characters is often a very fruitful exercise. So I'll give you an example from Hamlet. I'll give you examples from Crime and Punishment. So the, the example that they gave with Hamlet in, um, in the handbook here makes sense. So Hamlet is a character who is making a giant, going back to Megby's last week's episode, moral decision uh-huh. about whether or not he should enact revenge on his murdered father. So he is trying to make a decision as to whether or not he should kill uh, the man who killed his father. And he has a lot of sort of moral hangups around it. uh, And also even just like questions about why should you even do anything in this life? There are other characters who are in, in fact in the exact same position. So by the end of the play, Laertes has a murdered father by Hamlet. And Fortinbras has a murdered father by Hamlet's father. Right. Um, and so you have these two men who also are in the same position of Hamlet. They have um, reason to um, act and to take revenge, and they're going about it in different ways than Hamlet is. So let's analyze Laertes. Laertes comes in, and he is willing to kill anybody who even remotely possibly has any connection to his father's murder. And Laertes, it's quite clear the way that he's talking, is even willing to kill somebody who he is only like 5% sure did it, right? Like he's willing to kill Claudius, even though there's the king, even though there's no 
um, a rhyme or reason that Claudius murdered him. Laertes comes in hot, hot-tempered, and is willing to throw down at a moment's notice. He is somebody that is not thinking, and he's w- willing to act. This is in complete contrast to Hamlet, who is spending the entire play um, hand-wringing and wondering whether or not he should do this thing or not. Thinking too much, not getting Thinking done. too much. All right. He's an Obvi- overthinker. Obvious contrasts. And the question you ask is, is one man better than the other? Fortinbras is... Um, has you, laid up. Is, hmm? is there an answer to that? It seems Laertes is worse. For you would seem, yeah, and I think Laertes is worse than okay. Hamlet. And I, I, I think that's fair. You would look at Laertes and you would say, this man is headstrong and is going to get a lot of innocent people killed. Right. And Hamlet isn't, uh, except Hamlet's overthinking and gets innocent people killed. Whoops. Um, so the thing he was trying, th- like, he actually ends up doing the thing that we probably assume Laertes would have done, which is kill innocent mm. people. Sure. I don't know. I like Laertes' way. Just come on in and stab, stabby, stab? Probably because I'm naturally a Hamlet. Yeah. So yeah, just so you look at Laertes. Stuff and done. It also feels very American. So like, hold, yeah, hold on whoever. to that, that yeah. thing that you just said, that I'm a natural Hamlet, because I think that's going to end up being the launching off point for, you're wearing black already, um, for us talking about this with, with real life people, us. Contrast that to you have a character like Fortinbras, who, you, if you sort of read closely, you realize is hatching this very well-laid, masterful plan right. in the background. He um, um, is amassing an army. He is pretending that he's taking his army through Denmark to go do something else, but in reality, he's Oh, yeah, actually, we're going to go take over this other land. It's <laughs> yeah. no big deal. Oh, can, no we, attention. can we march our army to go invade Poland? We're totally not going to invade you guys, right. even though I have a natural ancestral grudge against you. <laughs> we cool? I'll just, awesome. I swear, I swear we'll just go right through. And Claudius is like, awesome. He's, come on know, in, boys. Come on in. Uh, uh, <laughs> done, done. Yeah. And so by the end of the play, Fortinbras comes in, has a clean sweep of Denmark, yeah. and he just shows up actually when everyone has murdered each, when everyone is dead, and he's like, whoa, this place looks worse than a battlefield. Uh, it actually, do- doesn't it not make clear whether whether or not he's there to take over? He just kind of rolls in. Well, he, he fires up. Visit- the thing is, there's cannon fire, mm-hmm. so you get the sense that he started in a siege. But Oh, he, really? But yeah. one very quickly. But right. one when very the quickly. Fire? It, it happens. Uh, they, they, um, um, when, when the murder's happening, Horatio... And then Osric, note that there's fi- cannon fire and, and Fortinbras here. Yeah. And then Fortinbras rolls in and Hamlet's like, take over. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, oh, sure, I didn't intend any other. But Fortinbras has sort of um, um, measured, um, clinical, and also he, he seems to, to uh, have the support of his troops. And everything that is sort of said about Fortinbras is that he's sort of worthy and noble and, um, um, you know, should be in charge. Even Hamlet, when he's done, he's like, yeah, Fortinbras can be in charge. He's probably pretty good at this. And you contrast that to Hamlet, who sort of sours all the relationships around him. Um, um, he, uh, yes, maybe the people like him, but the people like him not because they see, see him as a, uh, a noble ruler who maybe they would want to be their king, but they like him because he's like witty and funny. Mm. And um, um, you never know what Hamlet's gonna yeah, do. Yeah, and uh, what a card. And um, he and he's he's an actor through and through, so he's always like hamming it up uh, to the audience. And so that's that's a likable thing, but it's not likable in the sense of I am king. I am pl- glad to be under this person's command because he is so good, like a Cyrus the Great or somebody like that, right? 
Said he was a ham. I wouldn't say he was like a full ham. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's a little hamlet. He's a hamlet. He's a little hamlet. He's just a little small. <laughs> little small ham. Right? Okay, so then the character of Fortinbras serves as a foil to Hamlet. Visa, and so Laertes and Fortinbras vis-a-vis Hamlet's um, moral decisions. You can extend it further. Hamlet is pretending, and in many cases is, sort of flirting with crazy town. Um, and he, right. he says, I'm going to pretend to be mad. And everybody who talks to Hamlet is like, yeah, he seems crazy. But there's like method in his craziness. Mm-hmm. He's like saying true things while being okay. crazy. Right. And, and that is a powerful thing to do is that if everybody thinks that you're just a big jokester, you can say true things. This is why people will go and listen to stand-up comics and have stand-up comics like actually roast their way of life and be like, oh, <laughs> isn't he great? Right, because he's he's just the funny man. Right, um, and Hamlet is just the funny man. Hamlet is also uh, and and by f- everybody thinking he's flirting with crazy, he can say the real things. Okay, at the end of the play, Ophelia also goes crazy. It's also unclear if Ophelia is like Ophelia is not crazy in the realm of like straight jacket poo flinging crazy. Like she's not completely broken. Her mind isn't so broken that she is no longer, she is nonsensical. Right. Because the things that she says are also um, pregnant with truth, as they say it in the play. That when you listen to her, it has the form of meaning, even though it's wrapped up in in seeming madness. So Ophelia's madness is a foil to Hamlet's madness. Hamlet is using it as sort of a uh, almost like a political tool to try to like stick it to power. And Ophelia is using it kind of in a different way. Hers is Hamlet, who I loved, killed my father, who I loved. And her heart is now torn in two directions between being being sort of um, kicked to the curb by Hamlet and also the untimely death of her father. And her madness has this tinge of. Um, this is what you get for basically you know, for playing the game. This is what you get for um, um, believing the fairy tale that your prince will come and marry you, and um, you're you know you sort of listen to your dad, and he said to be to be chaste and good, and to um, uh, and that you're. Uh, and if you sort of f- uh, follow the rules and be coy and be beautiful, then the boy will love you and marry you. And I did, and the boy killed my dad and rejected me. Yeah. And now she's sort of she's mad. She's gone crazy with it. But and so her last scene where she is crazy, she also spends the time sticking it to everybody in subtle ways. Um, um, her madness is a lot more tragic than Hamlet's. Um, uh, I actually, I don't have, I personally don't know how I, f- how the foil of Ophelia's madness, how it, how we can really sort of use it to contrast with Hamlet's madness, but it is there. And the fact that Shakespeare has these characters who are going through similar things, the death of my dad has given me license to be crazy in public and tell people how I feel about them, right. both Hamlet and Ophelia. Uh, they both have this, but in their differences, we um, can maybe make sense of the nature of, of Hamlet's madness and Ophelia's madness. I'll give you another example of crime and punishment, and then we can say, like, okay, so why are we doing this? 
Um, in Crime and Punishment, you have characters that are all in very similar kinds of situations. Um, um, there's the character of Sonia and Dunya, and um, uh, Sonia is a poor uh, uh, girl uh, from a family that is in you know dire financial need, and so she has to go and sell herself as a prostitute in order to make some money for the family. She is meek, she is mild, she is good-natured, she is, like, tremblingly sad. She's like a scared little deer, the whole book. Um, and she is sort of doing this horrible sacrifice for, for her family. Okay. Um, we have uh, the, the character of Dunya, who is Raskolnikov's sister. Um, her family is in dire financial need instead, but she, but they are of sort of like a higher class than Sonia. So Dunya is selling, is going off and she is marrying a dude for money that she doesn't love. And he's kind of like this pompous boob and, uh, he wears purple gloves and, uh, what he, he wears purple gloves. The Excuse sinners. me. He didn't wear them. He carried, them. he oh. carried the lavender gloves cause they were too nice to wear. Fair enough. <laughs> Um, but he is kind of uh, like pompous and he like, you know, he curls his hair and, um, he, he, t- he kind of showboats when he first arrives. Mm-hmm. He talks about, oh, the young are so useful cause they, they have, I don't know. The progress is so good. They oh, have such good opinions. He has I, the, like, what is up my fellow kids, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he sort of showcases all his knowledge yeah. and. Raskolnikov just gives him a dressing down and he gets all flustered and offended. But anyway, he is clearly like kind of a dork of a person and being married to him is obviously mercenary. Well, it's it's even worse because he says, I mean, we should go for it. Go for it. He says that he wants to marry a destitute woman because then she will always look at it at on him as her benefactor. Like I want to marry somebody poor because then I'll kind of like, I always get to hang it over her head. She'll bring me my slippers and she can't talk back. Right. Like, um, because she knows where she came from. It's horrible. Really disgusting. Okay. He's not a great person. Now it's not of the same, uh, quality as, uh, Sonia, who is just going out and being a prostitute to like drunk peasants. But it is of a similar kind of thing. All right, there's two characters Self-sacrifice there, for the sake of But family. they are both self-sacrificing themselves. Um, for uh, And they both sort of are held up as these selfless characters. Okay, you keep those on sort of one side of the equation. On the other side of the equation, you have a character like Raskolnikov. Um, Raskolnikov is willing to kill other people for getting money. He is selfish. Like, he, he wants... He is saying that... Uh, he's sort of utilitarian. If we want to go back to Thomas's last episode, we were talking about ethical frameworks. He is willing to, um, kill others for cash, um, so that he can sort of like make his life better. And he dresses it up like, um, like a virtue that if I, you know, she's worth dying. She's, she's not, she's a, a general drag on society. If I can take her money and do good with that money that I'm going, then, um, I will, you know, I'm this good person. You know, I, I can sort of have more utils in the world. Right. Okay. Raskolnikov has a ex- pretty extreme view of this kind of utilitarian thing. Luzin, the, the guy who's marrying Dunya, also has a utilitarian view of the world, but his is a lot more like genteel and respectable, but it's still utilitarian. Um, if I live my life completely under self-interest and gather all of my money together and become super rich, well, then I can go do beneficial things to poor people like marry them. Um, 
and that they have, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and so yeah. that they have to, you know, that they are beholden to me and I am lifting Dunya out of poverty. And the only reason I can do that is because I was self-serving in my youth and saved all my cash. Mm. And now I can do beneficial things like save poor, beautiful women. Um, right. He has this utilitarian view that is also selfish. Right. So the book framework has selfish characters and selfless characters Raskolnikov and Sonia exist almost on like the lower class version of this, or if you want to call it like a more extreme version, their poverty necessitates them to take more extreme actions. Uh, Sonia as a prostitute, Raskolnikov as a murderer. And then like Dunya and Lucin's relative um, middle classness means that they don't have to be as extreme, but they, but their actions are still in the same of the same type. As the other two, they're just sort of like more socially acceptable. She's marrying, she's a gold digger or she's marrying for money. He is um, marrying with money. He's marrying right. with money and, is, and, and, and knows it and is kind of like, like a pompous rich jerk. Right. Um, and is willing to be selfish for his own gain, just like Raskolnikov. But Lucin's not murdering, Raskolnikov is. Okay, so Raskolnikov and Lucin, you can see them as foils for each other. Dunya and Sonia, Sonia. Oh, Russian names uh, in this book. You can see them as foils for each other, and then you can kind of like cross foil each other uh, <laughs> uh, and 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 make claims about like um, because they're you yeah by uh, Lucin Dunya because they're sort of of a higher class than Raskolnikov and Sonia. It their sort of personal ethic plays itself out in less extreme ways. Right now, you're saying something interesting about you know. Um, if Luzin was poor, would he murder? You know, like if he still has the same ethic as Raskolnikov, so maybe he would. Anyway, my, the, my, the point being in showing this is not to debate these characters, is right. to show that the power of contrasting, the power of, of using the foil in literature can um, uh, open up the story to talk about these norms, can open up the story to talk about um, how, uh, 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 how these characters um, are different. Okay. So, so what? Say, but, mm -hmm. Yeah, because I, I feel like I'm used to hearing a foil brought up as like a, like a positive or a negative foil. Mm -hmm. Or in your Hamlet example, you're looking for who handled this better than Hamlet. Mm -hmm. But with your crime and punishment example, they're all bad people, aren't they? Well, Sonia and oh, Sonia no, Dunya are, sorry, are sorry. trying. They're, they're, it's self-sacrifice. Mm -hmm. self I was just sacrifice. between Lucin and Raskolnikov. And even even weirder is the Lucin and Raskolnikov interaction when Raskolnikov says to him as Lucin talks about his ethos he says if you follow this to its conclusion you can slit throats and Lucin's like my, my good man my good man of and course the, not and it seems like Raskolnikov has a disdain for it but the thing even is though he, he does it but right? then he did it like yeah, he, yeah, he yeah. followed it to its natural conclusion and slit some throats mm -hmm. kind of didn't want to I don't anyway um, he, he, he did it because he wanted to prove that he was like hardcore Raskolnikov I was <laughs> yeah. thinking of because after he gets caught by the um, lady what's the What's it called when you sell stuff to oh the pawnbroker pawn after after he kills the pawnbroker someone just like sees him is it the pawnbroker's daughter Elizabeth's sister. sister sister but anyway like that one's an accident he kills all, her too know. not an accident he's or he, he didn't he didn't come there intending to, to kill her mm -hmm. or her kid who or her her her, about her, her baby um well yeah so sorry real. I'm I'm used to thinking of that was a tangent I'm mm -hmm. used to thinking of foil as like you know there's the main character who does something wrong the foil is kind of how they should have handled it or a better example 
Um, and that's probably too simplistic. I, guess no, I think that's like, that is the first step. Right. So with, with Hamlin Laertes, that's the first step. Sure. Like Who did who's better? doing this better. Right. But, um, but continuing with the foil, you're right. Like when you get to a more, a com- more complicated book of right. relationships like crime and punishment, yes. it's not as Raskolnikov or Lewis and handling it better. It's, um, the comparison of these characters, um, uh, is, um, um, well, the the point I, I was making with that is the extremity of the of poverty. So the fact that Raskolnikov is desperate sure. means that he, his philosophy, his personal ethic, is going to play itself out in a harsher way than Lucen, who is not desperate. Sure. But they still they still have uh, the same philosophy in kind. They just have a different philosophy and degree, sure. and you wouldn't have you don't notice that until you start doing that foil comparison. Now Raskolnikov also gives us license to do that because he does it himself in the book. But since Raskolnikov does it himself in the book with Lucin, it should give the reader license to start doing it with everybody else in the book. Right. Um, so it's, so then like. Um, Raskolnikov gives you license to compare Dunya and Sonia because he does it. He's like, ah, my sister, you're just like Sonia, mm-hmm. selling yourself for cash. And it's like, well, she is, but not really. There's also a direct able comparison we haven't mentioned yet, which Go is with it. Raskolnikov and Razumikin. Yeah. Right? Razumikin is another student who has fallen on hard times, doesn't have the money to continue his studies, but his solution is to work. He's yeah. going to make some translations, make a little money on the side, and he's got money to give away because it's make you know, he's he's actually getting some. And he says you know, it doesn't really matter what the original text is anyway, because no one can tell I'm doing it wrong. So I might as well translate it good or bad and make a, make a couple bucks off of it. He's really nice to everybody. There's no reason for him to, to hurt anyone. Mm-hmm. And he just has all these grand plans about how he's going to make some cash and help his entire community. It's the same as Raskolnikov, but through pulling up his bootstraps and get some work done rather than murdering somebody and taking all their stuff. Yeah, Raskolnikov yeah. wants, so both of them are willing to do hard things to get ahead. But the hard thing that Raskolnikov was willing to do is murder, whereas the hard thing Razumikin is willing to do is work. On, honest work. <laughs> um, and Razumikin really is um, a, like how to win friends and influence people kind of guy. Sure. Um, See, like, everybody just loves him. Yeah. Naturally. Yeah. Um, whereas uh, Raskolnikov is, you know, how to hate everybody and and alienate everybody. Um, anyway, so the, my, so yes, okay. So why why do this? It doesn't just help you internalize the book. Um, uh, that question of what we did with Hamlin and Laertes, who did it better? Um, what are we actually trying to get to with that question? Uh, when I'm, if I'm under stress or or, uh, when something bad happens to me, how should I respond? Yeah. We're trying to get to some kind of moral idea. Well, uh, some sort of ideal decision or like what, what is the ideal type of person? And this ends up being a, the big kind of uh, fruitful questions for literature that they can help sort of form the reader is a struggle for the ideal type. Now, Hanberg, you, you, you are better at giving like a little rundown of what we mean when we say the ideal type. What do we mean when we say ideal type? The notion of the ideal type is saying that there is a there is a right way that men should behave and conduct themselves in the world, mm-hmm. and much of the the discussion of philosophy and ethics has been aimed at determining what that ideal type is. Mm-hmm. But what, whereas probably the current ethos, moral relativism, says there is no ideal type. You can be whatever you want to be. The type is whatever you choose. 
most of philosophical history has claimed that there is some ideal type. And that's not just Christianity, which would say Jesus is our ideal, mm-hmm. but that's, I mean, Plato had an ideal type. Aristotle had an ideal type. The, even the Stoics had an I- ideal type. Almost even uh, Nietzsche. Nietzsche's ideal type was the criminal. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's somebody who lives according to their own law, right? That he, he even said so, right? The Superman is akin to the criminal. And then there's, there like, most philosophers say this is how man should behave. And so discussing the ideal type is what we're doing. Yeah. So if in Megby's last episode, we were talking about, we were having a conversation yes. about the ideal type, yes. but we were doing it from... Uh, sort of a rational philosophical framework discussion. Yes. Kind of a higher level of w- which of these ethical frameworks is better than another one. Yes. As opposed to... Doing this, it in this yeah. way, you have a uh, uh, sort of a human level story yes. and you are asking those normative questions about what is the ideal type by analyzing, by talking about characters and how they, yes. and how they interacted in a story. Is Hamlet going about this the better way, or is Laertes? Is Fortinbras going about this the better way, or Hamlet? Um, is is Hamlet's feigned madness a useful thing? Is Ophelia's, or or is it feigned? Is Ophelia's feigned madness or unfeigned madness um, um, uh, a useful thing? A, a, a sort of like a, a press, a, a, a press, what's the word? Pressure release or not? Um, is she speaking truth to power? Is Hamlet speaking truth to power? Um, uh, is there actually a difference between what Sonia and Dunya are doing just because there are, um, uh, you know, re- degrees of respectability about right. prostitution versus marrying for money? Um, um, is Lucin as bad as a murderer uh, or not? And I think these are actually open questions, even though that they are both operating from the same kind of like selfish p- place. Right. Um, clearly, Razumikhin is going about life better than Raskolnikov, but they're animated and motivated by the same things. So, um, uh, um, they uh, so that okay, if Raskolnikov and Razumikhin come from the same context, why are they operating in different ways? Why is what Razumikhin doing a a satisfying life? And what Raskolnikov is doing is an unsatisfying life. And by sort of having these characters, um, I'm contrasting them to each other. You, you know, you, in having a conversation about this, you are getting to or trying to uncover that ideal type and um, and and say like, what is the attitude, behavior, um, decision making, uh, the way someone comports oneself that is the best way for a human person to sort of exist given the contexts of the world that they get thrown at. Yeah. Um, like when we talk about in your last episode, if we talked about like a objectivist, well, we're sort of like plucking somebody from a context and saying, here are the, uh, the characteristics of an objectivist. And I think that's a totally fine thing to do. And then if we were to say like, here's Raskolnikov or here's Hamlet in a context Talk, let's talk about their decisions that they're making. Sure. They're now in a in a um, an actual living, breathing story um, where people are behaving and they're reacting to that behavior. Analyzing them is very different than talking about aism. Sure, and same with your if, if Hamlet and Laertes are your comparison, your neither of them is perfect in their response. Mm-hmm. In the way that when you analyze a philosophy, you can have essentially a perfect view. Yeah, but in the trolley problem brings us out. You don't get to be perfect. You don't get to have perfect outcomes. Mm-hmm. So having to deal with it in the, okay, um, either you're 
bloodthirsty or you're inert. Mm-hmm. Pick one. It makes it interesting. Again, yeah. Whereas if you were to write, yeah. So this is sort of the nuance we were, I was even thinking about in the last episode is if you were to write the story of the trolley problem, oh. as opposed to just have the like lab experiment, mm-hmm. if you were to write the story of the trolley problem, you would have a character who would say things like, should I pull the lever? Well, how did this even happen? Uh, is, you know, is am I on a prank show? <laughs> like, right. The context of, of a person in the real life of a real life scenario um, isn't going to be the same thought process as oh, I'm an objectivist. How would I deal with this? Well, and then you make another character who is cajoling him, trying to get him to pull the lever, but mm-hmm. isn't willing to pull it themselves. Mm-hmm. And then you have the guy that walks by, so like, "What are you doing?" and mm-hmm. pushes him out of the way, and then yanks the lever. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a there's also there's a book called The Sunflower that is about a, an incident during World War II. Uh, this is brief aside. Sorry. Um, where um, uh, there's a Jewish man at a concentration camp and he's working every day and one day is pulled out of the group, taken to the bedside of a dying German soldier and the German soldier asks him for forgiveness. Mm -hmm. German soldier says, please, would you forgive me for what I've done in my life? And so then the book is a series of essays responding from all these different philosophical and religious viewpoints as to how should this is a real story that happened. How should this person respond in that moment? Mm-hmm. So that's another way of doing it where um, you essentially build out the story and give the different viewpoints as to what someone should do if you are an egoist or a utilitarian or a comp- mm-hmm. p- pick your category. Mm-hmm. So that'd be another way to do yeah. it. And then, um, so this is how you, you use that tool to um, um, compare these characters. So if you're doing it in a classroom or doing it with yourself, you would get out a sheet of paper and you would start writing the, the similarities and the differences between two characters that are in similar contexts. And then from there, you start to ask these kinds of questions. So we've been doing that. Uh, the next level of this is to then actually see, wait, the piece of literature itself ends up acting as a foil to me as the reader. So, um, um, the way that the book answers these moral questions or goes about these problems and my reaction to it is to be is supposed to sort of help me sort of understand myself. Um, so uh, how, how can I give an example of this? So um, if you. Um, OK, if you're. Um, Watching like if you have a, a group of people and you're all watching a horror movie, and some are people just like love the scenes where everyone gets cut up, and some people are horrified of it, and some people just um, are so satisfied that the bad guy gets caught at the end, and some people are so like kind of cheesed off that the bad guy didn't get away with it. The question is, should we be? Um, if you are one of those kids watching that movie on a sleepover. Um, has that movie, your reaction to that movie, has it told you something about yourself? Yes. Um, and, uh, has it also sort of told you something about your friends who are reacting in different ways? Sure. Yeah. This feels the same as, again, the trolley problem last time you all had immediate responses. Yeah. Tells you something. I'm not Um, sure I want to hang out with the kid that really loves the cut up scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that doesn't seem like a fun kid to hang out with. But I mean, on the other hand, like, don't you like horror movies? Oh, I love horror movies. You like the parts where people get cut up? Not particularly. Just making sure. Um, If you so then, but is it actually a reliable thing? Do you think it's it is a reliable thing to say like, oh, when I read a book, 
Like, for example, I really hate Catcher in the Rye. I hmm? hate that book. Yeah, the first time I read it, I threw it across the room. Literally, I was like, ugh, and I just chucked it. Um, was my disdain or dis- disgust at that book um, worth analyzing to understand myself, or is it just like it was a crappy book? Like, I guess my point is, if if should you be spent, should the person, when they read something that affects them, um, um, should you spend the time trying to sort of understand the source of your disgust? Um, Can I say yes? I, I don't. You're probably moving toward a no, but the my response in saying yes is that like the book should stay with you for a while. Mm-hmm. So just so initial, you know, you read Hamlet. Laertes really sticks with you as a character because you're a foolhardy person. You just like taking action. Mm-hmm. Um, so that example, you know, just kind of kicks around your mind for a while. That doesn't mean that your initial reaction is the same one you'll have, mm-hmm. at least to look at why am I so drawn to this character and not this one? Why yep. am I disgusted by this character and not this one? Again, you know, if you've only read a classic once, you haven't read it at all. Mm-hmm. And so to let it stay with you is to kind of grow with it, right? Yeah, I think sort of the point I'm saying, and AJ, you were saying this earlier, it's like, oh, well, I, I see a lot of Hamlet in me. Is I think that's that is a helpful thing for the person what to do when they read books is what do I find interesting or what do I what do I see in myself in a character and um, contra- and comparing that to the idea of like the ideal type is this a good thing that I have this this quality and this characteristic or is this a bad thing that I have this quality or this characteristic. Um, and then we've got we've, we've got a little audience laughing at us outside. I don't know if you can hear the giggles. Are there students out there? Yeah, there's some students. There's the kids who work here to clean the, uh-huh. the to sweep the floors. Like it's the weekend. Tell them to go home. Yeah. Um, so I guess my point being that um, is that you when you're reading that? books, is the answer the answer you would say is yes. I think it is. The okay. answer is yes. Like when you are are reading something and. Um, um, you should always be asking yourself, why do I, why do I, do I like this thing? And is it actually, you know, sort of worth liking? Um, uh, why do I hate this character? Do I hate this character for the right reasons? Or do I hate this character because they remind me of me and I hate that about myself? Sure. Um, and that books end up, sh- or should end up becoming like foils for our, for ourselves in order for us to kind of um, um, sort of understand ourselves. For example, why do I love what's it called? One flew over the cuckoo's nest, and you hate. And I hate that book. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah. Now, nest. do I hate that book because I have you know um, um, because of the reasons that I think that I think why I hate it, or do I hate it because there's something about the book that reminds me of me that I dislike about myself? I don't know. Um, I actually actually don't know. And maybe maybe I <laughs> actually, love no, it I because do. what I. I really love the idea of a licentious freedom. Maybe mm-hmm. that's what I need to investigate in myself. Mm-hmm. Like, am I secretly a Christian who just would love to have a day where I can just do whatever I want to? Yeah, maybe I hate that book because um, I don't like when people just like get to do whatever they want because it makes me feel uncomfortable. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's a bad characteristic to have. Is that is that a characteristic of the ideal type? Sure. Um, and these are, but then this is an argument for reading books together and then talking yes. about... Okay, this is why. This is what I like. This is what I didn't like. And mm-hmm. then, again, the strength with which you hated a character is the strength with which someone else loves that character. Yes. And then to again, this is the same point from before of people. Um, people will have an immediate reaction to an ethical situation. Uh, then having that discussion of why is really important. Same here. Of again, to your maybe you're right about one flew over the cuckoo's nest and Graham is wrong. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've, yeah, that's true. That's the obvious. <laughs> Obviously, um, but it gets. Now, 
just a point of warning, going back to our example of the kids watching the horror movie, and AJ, I do agree with you, the kid that's like ends the movie and is like, I love blood. You're like, okay, you know what? You're not coming over next time. Right. But, um, Can but we watch the machete scene? Yeah, yeah. No, man. No, go Gross. to bed. Go to sleep. Um, but there is a word of warning that should be placed wherein like, you can't, judging someone's reaction to a story it's really hard for you to draw conclusions about that person. It's probably a better exercise done for oneself than it is done for somebody else. I mean, and this is even something that happens in the play of Hamlet. Hamlet says, hey, if I put on this play depicting the murder of my father and I judge my de- my uncle's reaction, who I think is the murderer, then I can know what's going on in his heart. And it turns out that when he does it, he's right. He does know what's going like uh, the the scene did affect Claudius and Claudius sort of does tip his hand and Hamlet does know what's going on in the guy's soul. But I don't think that this is a um, uh, this is not a foolproof way of like building relationship. Like if you're having I don't know, you wouldn't do this with your spouse. I mean, like go watch a movie and if she like loves the scene where the husband dies, be like, oh, no. <laughs> right. But um, there are things uh, there is an element of that when you're dating where if they don't just don't like the same stuff you like, it might be a good witness. I don't know. I don't know about that. No, hanging out. Uh, no, I, I understand. It's just like I feel like when you're trying to apply that metric or you're trying to apply that that tool to somebody else, it's so complicated that you. I feel like the potential that you make the wrong conclusion, there's so much margin of error that it's almost not worth doing than if you're doing it to yourself. For example, the kid who loves the blood scenes, maybe it's because it reminds him of hunting with his dad. Yeah, you know what? Uh, he wants yeah, to be a doctor. For sure. He wants, he wants to be, to be a, a doctor. doctor. Yeah. yeah. He's um, interested in physiology. Yeah. I think the point is more that those reactions are avenues to talking about a philosophy that this is, I, I think what you're saying about my episode, it's like, it's really hard. No one's going to, there's a small group of people who would say I'm an objectivist. I'm an egoist. I'm a virtue ethicist, but most people kind of, they can't talk about it as abstractly as that. So you can embody it in a story mm-hmm. and then say, which of these characters is the most interesting or which mm-hmm. of these do you associate with the most? And so you learn something about the other person, mm-hmm. but it's not, you can't just judge the emotional reaction. It then has to lead to, okay, tell me why this character is interesting to you. Mm-hmm. Am I understanding that correctly? I think so. Um, and then the other thing you can add on to this is also doing re the, the power of rereading books is, is being, is also the power of sort of seeing your own change as a person over time. So for example, this past summer, I reread Lord of the Rings and I don't think I had read it since college. And I remember the last time that I read it in college, the, um, when I read it, I, I would read the parts that didn't have Aragorn in it fast because I wanted to get to the parts with Aragorn because I loved the character of Aragorn. You know, the, the, he's, he's cool. He's the king. He throws down. Um, he can, like, the women, the girl falls in love with him. You're like, I can't be with you. I have to be with my beloved. And, you're, and you know, as a 21-year-old man, you're like, yes, that's what I want. You know, I love this guy. You want to turn down ladies? Yeah, that was your dream? Of course. Um, and then flocking one, after you and be like, sorry. No, there's someone else. Um, and uh, this idea that he's got this like destiny of like being the king yes. of Minas Tirith. Of Minas Tirith, yeah, right? Right. You, as a 21-year-old, you read that, you love it. Okay, when I read it this past summer, I, I just loved the story of Sam and Frodo, spe- specifically Sam. When Sam, a simple country gardener thrown into this adventure, um, is, and then, uh, um, 
uh, has to find courage, uh, doesn't kind of doesn't really know what's going on, but is just along for the ride. And by the end, you know, sort of uh, uh, realize, you know, sort of finds himself as, as you know, Samwise the Brave. Um, and then also Frodo, the person who his his heroism comes not through feats of strength, but through like single mindedness, endurance of pain. Right. Um, I just found those to be so affecting. So much so that I was on the, uh, the fl- I was flying to Canada this summer to see my family, and I was on the scene where Sam thinks Frodo has died, and he decides that he will take up and be the ring bearer. I literally cried on the airplane, not audibly in a way that it, the guy next to me was weirded out, <laughs> but I just, it, I was just so moved by it. I was just so moved by, um, you know, the, and and whenever they talked about wanting to go back to the simplicity of the Shire. Um, you know, it it hit me like uh, uh, in a, in a sort of a strong way. Like I wanted, I too wanted to go back to the simplicity of the Shire and the beer and the pub and making cheese and like growing gardens and that kind of thing. Okay, um, a psychologist could probably have a field day over uh, the change in Graham Donaldson from twenty one to thirty eight based on what I find resonant in the story. But personally, the, what one should do is when they look at that, they can say, okay, so what about um, uh, you know, what is the, of the ideal type am I resonating with here? Well, there, you know, the, 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 you know, Sam's desire to like live a simple life in a good home, but he has to do this difficult thing that he doesn't want to do, but he's doing it anyway. You know, those are, those are valuable lessons. I don't know. My, my point being that it, I think it is a fruitful exercise for the reader when they're reading to keep notes, to write things down. I don't know if it's you go as far as journaling your thoughts, but to keep some sort of record of your reading so that if you do go back and reread the book, you have a record of the reading that when you were that you had that when you were younger, that now that you're older, you can um, you know, you, um, see either the growth, not even just the growth, but just the change. And that change is actually, I think, kind of a like rewarding thing to see. Um, um, I think this is why marginalia is so important. Exactly. Reading with a pencil. Yes. When I go back and I look at the passages I marked, I was like, what was I thinking? Mm-hmm. And you can sort of see this chronicle of your own change over time just in, just in what affects you. And if you do that, if you sort of keep a record of yourself vis-a-vis the books as a foil to yourself, then there's something where you, you feel like you have taken more control of your own headspace than if you're just sort of like a slave to the everyday or you're just sort of like being uh if if you're sort of unthinkingly going through life and you're not reflecting on your place in it um and reflecting on your change on your place in life um then you know the the, the, your thing understanding yourself is going to be missed so the foil is not just just to sort of lay on the plane here uh the foil is not just to compare characters but it's to, in the act of comparing characters, you can then begin to compare characters to yourself. And then if you continue that process through time, you've almost kind of like built up this compendium. This is why commonplace books are so important, that you can sort of have this record of your relationship with your own soul by going through these stories. Sure. Um, and so... Well, really, you're just testing. It's a, it's a continuous testing of a character... To the ideal type, 
Is this, mm-hmm. what does it reflect in me that isn't in the ideal type? What are they doing wrong? I mean, yeah. it's, it's the basic practice of fiction and literature, which mm-hmm. is to, it's a low stakes way to test our own reactions, mm-hmm. right? Should that guy have done that thing? Well, would I have done that thing? Mm-hmm. Maybe. And looking at philosophies as they work out in the world, right? We talked about in Magby's episode about all of these different ethical frameworks mm-hmm. and and we had characters that we could say, well, this is a character that actually tried to live that out. And it didn't really go so well for these few reasons, mm-hmm. right? So I don't think I'm going to do that framework. Mm-hmm. That is, like I said, it's a low stakes way of working things out in the world yeah. without having to do it ourselves. And um, yeah, anyway, so that, that's, that, uh, and we're, it's a shorter episode, but that's, that's sort of uh, how, what I wanted to sort of show is that um, um, you, when you sort of like have a book and even have a literary device and you work your way out, you can begin to apply th- that literary device not only just to the job or the work of analyzing literature, but then using it on you as a reader. Um, uh, uh, the muscles of reading others, it, it can be turned on, on yourself and you can read yourself and, there, and um, you know, sort of almost take some kind of agency in understanding you as you exist through through, through time, right? Like I now look back and I can see the 21-year-old Donaldson reading this book, thinking that he, you know, wanting to be king. Right. And now I have the 38-year-old Donaldson reading the book, wanting to be a simple gardener, right? Like there, that, there's, a, there's something in the ideal type. Probable shift. Yeah, there, but yeah. there's something in the ideal type in both of those things. It is appropriate for a 21-year-old to want to, you know, romanticize going off and finding some sort of like kingship in the world, just as there's probably something appropriate for a 38 year old to, uh, to want to have sort of like a set, a settled rooted existence. <laughs> yeah. And, but willing to take up difficulties if, if you, those are the days you're called to. What I love anyway. is that in the original definition from the handbook to literature, mm-hmm. it says a foil is the thing you put behind a jewel. So in this case, you're the jewel, Graham. Uh, right? Yes. So the foil is behind you to bring out yes. your own brilliance. And so on that note, <laughs> we'd like to end the episode <laughs> with Graham as a brilliant jewel, as I always knew he was. So this has been Classical Stuff You Should Know. You can check us out on the internet all over the place. You can email us at theguysatclassicalstuff.net, which is our website, classicalstuff.net, where you can find back episodes and paintings to go along with the episodes. And you can also donate to us on Patreon if you like our stuff. And with that comes some perks. You get ad-free episodes if we ever have ads. We have occasionally. (laughs) And you also get some other perks. So you can get uh, in-between episodes. And if you go with the highest tier, you can get a free sweatshirt and a pair of Crocs, which is super fun. You can also find us on Twitter, CLSSCAL stuff. And you can find us other places too. You know, wherever wherever podcasts are made and sold. So yep. on the on the marketplace of podcasts, that's where, where we're at. One of them. Slinging podcasts. Slinging yep. podcasts all day. Stop by our booth and get yourself a, po- a nice hot podcast. Hey, Governor, get but your podcast. Anyway, uh, this is uh, Graham Thomas and AJ signing off. Ciao. Bye. See you later. Bye.